2: including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton.
3: Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. For those of you who are listening live, it's Christmas Eve Uh, My guess is that most of you are probably listening to this after the holiday, uh, and I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret. I'm actually taping this in advance because nobody needs to be thinking about college admissions or paying for college uh, on Christmas. But that is the beauty of getting in, uh, and I did want to make a plug for the fact that we are available 24-7 on Voice America or free download on iTunes, so basically you can listen whenever. You want to, and if that's on Christmas Eve, well, um, then good for you. You, you, It's free and available, and all of our segments are there. Um, More importantly, on today's show, we're going to be walking through how assets are treated in that EFC calculation, and that's the expected family contribution calculation. And we also have some suggestions and tips for those of you who've been deferred in early decision or in early action. There actually are some things you can do to better your chances of acceptance in regular, uh, and we're going to be talking about those. But first... Uh, you may think, well, I got in early decision or early action, so I'm all set. But there are actually some things that you need to be aware of, um, things you need to actually do, uh, and then things you want to be careful that you avoid. And I'm really excited to welcome my colleague, Karen Spencer, who is a former admissions officer at Georgetown and at Franklin and Marshall, to the show today. And she's going to talk through these things with us. Hi,
4: Karen. Hi, Beth. How are you?
3: I am all
4: right. I'm about to go on vacation as well. so um, I know.
3: I'm jealous. I I'm not taking much time off this year. So, um, Well, thank you very much for taking time right before you go on vacation to talk to us about this. Um, and, and as I was mentioning in my opening, I think you, know, you get in and you're really excited and it feels like, okay, well, I don't really, you know, the hard part is done. And it's true. The hard part is done. You've gotten in. But there actually are some things um, that you need to do. Uh, As a student, once you've been admitted and let's start with early decision, because um, early decision is different than early action and requires something more immediate. Um, So what's the first thing that you tell students to do who've been admitted in early decision?
4: So you know, the first thing you do is you know do your little happy dance. Um, you know, okay. high five yourself. Um, go on the website, order all the paraphernalia you want and can afford. Yep. Um, you know, do that, and then there are a few other things to keep in mind. I think um, right after that, one is you do need to withdraw from anywhere else you've applied. Now, some kids will have only applied to their ED school because of the deadline and the deadlines of everywhere else they were applying. So if you only apply to that school, then you don't have to worry about that. Um, but a lot of students will have also applied maybe to their state institution that had an earlier rolling deadline, for example, or um, other schools that were EA just because they were done with the application, and why not send it out the door? So... If you've applied anywhere else, um, you are required. This is not just a, like, you know, if you feel like it. You need to. It is in your agreement that you will withdraw your applications from every other school. So you need to call Penn State or Franklin and Marshall or, you know, wherever it is that you applied and and withdraw your application. Um, they may ask you where you're going. Um, you feel free to tell them that. Um, you know, schools use this for data mining. They want to see who their overlap um, and who their competition is, and that's fine. You can answer the question honestly um, if they ask you, which is, they very well may not. Uh, but that's the kind of number one priority is to, um, is to withdraw all of your applications immediately. Um, and, and keep in mind, too, and this actually goes for early action as well, um, and we'll talk about that in a second, is, you know, everywhere your application is lingering um, and, you know, is this spot you're potentially taking away from somebody else who wants it, and you don't need it, right? right? So right. you need to withdraw. So, again, it's, just, it's not only just a good thing to do, it's kind of a, a requirement of applying early decision.
3: Exactly, because in those agreements that you signed when you applied early decision, there is a very clear clause in there that states if you are admitted, you agree to withdraw all of your other applications and um, and accept this offer of admission. So I think that's really important. One thing that I get a lot of parents asking me about is how do you go about withdrawing? You mentioned calling. um, I think a lot of schools these days have a portal, and there might be an opportunity to simply withdraw via the portal. So there are a lot of different ways you can go about it, but if you are not sure that the school has received your message, I think the easiest thing is probably to call or send an email. Um, Anything else that I'm
4: missing there? Yeah, I think you can do both. Um, Sometimes I think they still send a card, you know, like, or, you know, you can send back. Um, You can, again, I think calling and emailing, doing on the portal. um, Make sure you tell your guidance counselor as well. Guidance counselors want to keep track of that information. So if they get a phone call, like, we're missing your kid's, you know, transcript, they can say, oh, this student has gone to X, Y, or Z college um, instead. So they also will know. So I think it's better to cover your bases and, and maybe overdo it than underdo it.
3: Right, exactly. And I think um, another thing would be don't stop checking the portal, right, on the on the school. So once you've been admitted, it's not just, okay, I'm checking out, I don't have to worry about college anymore, I'm all done, because um, there are other things that you might have to do. So is there any advice that you have for students on that front?
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a few things that apply to both ED and EA, maybe, and we should probably mm-hmm. cover those. So one is, if you've been admitted, whether it's, whether it's the school is early decision and, and thus binding or or not, you're going to get a lot more information from any school that's accepted you, right? So you're going to yep. start getting things like housing information. You're going to get, um, you know, financial aid or merit-based information, um, anything coming your way. So you don't want to just kind of check out. There's still work to be done. It's not particularly hard. It's more kind of minutia, but it's important minutiae. Um, Um, So you want to make sure you're on it. So, you know, for example, some schools that are rolling, and again, I'm picking Penn State because it's nearby, but, um, you know, it's a good example where if an enrolling admissions school, especially a state institution, may send you housing information, um, that they will say, if you want first dibs on housing, you need to turn this in as soon as possible. Um, And you may say... You know what, I'm not sure I want to go to Penn State, but I might, and I want first dibs on housing, and so that's where this is the kind of thing, it can get a little tricky, um, but you want to keep your eye out for that because if you know that that's a potential you know school that you want to apply to and that housing information is due sooner than the May 1st deadline for most schools, um, that's the kind of thing you need to keep your eye out for.
3: Yes, absolutely. And um, sometimes, usually not with early decision, but often with early action or with rolling, the finance forms, um, if you're applying for financial aid, may be due later than um, your your application was due. So there may still be some forms that you have to fill out to apply for that um those funds and, and you want to keep an eye out for the, that as well. And I think you might've mentioned it, but I do want to state clearly just in case um, that the other thing with ED is you do have to pay your deposit yeah. and right. So until they get that, your so deposit so far as they know, you're not coming.
4: Right. Yeah, yep. it's, it's like the check's in the mail. Well, until I have the check, you're not coming here. So um, exactly. that needs to be received.
3: And, and you'll hear from them if you don't deposit, and they'll be asking you, where's your deposit, where's your deposit, where's your deposit, because they want it. Yeah. Um, what about uh the student who... I don't know if you ever used to deal with this but the student who says, "You know, I when I filled out my application, I plan to do 5 APs in the second half of my senior year and play um, a varsity sport this winter and um You know, I was also going to do a couple of really interesting electives. And now that I'm accepted, I don't really want to do any of those things. So I'm thinking about dropping down from the AP to the regular level in a couple of areas and maybe not playing that sport. And I don't think I'm going to do those electives that aren't required. Um, What are your thoughts on that for the student who's already been admitted?
4: So I think my answer to that starts with my most frequently given answer on any question related to this process, which is it depends to some degree a little on the school, right? Yep. Um, I think the more selective a school you get, the less wiggle room there is for any senioritis. Um, I think the you know the easier the school is to get into, the more there may be a little wiggle room for a little bit. You know, I generally tell my students, unless this is the IVs or the pseudo IVs, a little senioritis is fine. Going from an A to an A minus, A minuses to B pluses are probably not going to get your offer rescinded, right? Going from A's to C's and D's might, right? Yep. So I always say a little senioritis at most schools is, is okay. Deciding to drop, you know, two of your AP courses down and not playing, you know, a sport in the spring is starting to push it um, a lot. So I think if you have any question about whether or not... <clears throat> It's okay to you know drop a course, drop down a level. Um, you know you want to always ask. I think that's the safest thing is call the admissions office because there may be it may not even be senioritis. Like maybe you're in it over your head um, and you're you know you're struggling and you say you know what it's not, I'm not you know trying to slack off here. I just really am not getting AP Calculus. <laughs> this is not working right. for me um, and I want to go to calculus. You know they may say fine. They may say sorry. Your admission is you know one of the things that every student needs to know um, whether they've applied early action, regular early doesn't matter, is that in order to be an enrolled student, we're going to require a final transcript. Um, Every school requires this. So you're not really done there either, right? So I know you got in and you're like... Sweet, um, But every school is going to require a final transcript. And at Georgetown, we had letters that went to kids who didn't have a great final transcript that did not match what they were admitted on. Um, and some were just kind of a slap on the wrist. Some put them on academic probation. And then there was a letter that pulled their entire acceptance. So again, if you've got any question about whether it's okay to drop something, the rule of thumb is always to ask.
3: Yeah. And I would say that when I was at Penn, Um, I would inevitably get a few phone calls after ED acceptances went out with students looking to not usually drop down in three different classes, but Well, I was thinking of taking this class, but I'd really rather not, and I'd never said yes. (laughs) So my response was always, you were admitted based on what you were planning to do, what you'd already done and what you were planning to do, and that's our expectation, is that you will stick with that plan and you will do well in it. I cannot remember a time when we okayed a student changing, but to your point, that is a very, very specific Um, highly selective environment and um, it was really, really difficult to get that spot. At schools where they are admitting more than half their applicant pool and you know, the fact that you were maybe going to do four APs in your senior year was really great, but not necessarily something they expected. They may not mind at all that you you really need to drop down in a class or two. So you definitely want to call, but I do think you need to be prepared, depending on the selectivity of the school, to be told, nope, we'd like you to stick with what you what you originally said you were going to do. Yep. Um, I, I'm just... There is a difference, so so we kind of covered things that apply to both ED and EEA, um, but EA enrolling are a little bit different from early decision in that you're getting an early answer, but you have until May 1 to decide. So, um, what's some advice that you have for students who've been admitted to their early action and or rolling admission schools, but who are still planning to apply to some other institutions?
4: So the first is I think you really want to decide if there, if you haven't applied to any other schools yet, what schools really fall below that on your radar, right? So if this was a school you were really super interested in out of, you know, you apply, you're going to apply to seven, this was your second choice. You want to think, do I really still need to apply to numbers three through seven, right? Because yep. if you weren't going to go there anyway, it kind of goes back to the point I said earlier, you know, ultimately, if you apply there and you get in, you're taking a spot away from a kid who maybe really wants to go there and you have no intention of going there. So don't apply. You know, I, I yep. understand the, the idea the some kids really want to see how many places they can get into, but... You know, ultimately that's somewhat of a selfish endeavor, um, especially if you haven't applied. You know, have your parents save the $70, you know, or $60 it's going to cost on all those applications and go, you know, do something better with that, that amount of money. Um, you know, I, so I think one is to really decide, is there any school I have applied to that I'd actually like to go to more than this institution and only apply um, to those. Um, yep. So I think that's one. I think if you get into an early, early action school, even though it's not binding, if you know it's your first choice, you've got to make a decision. Do you want to deposit now? Right? Yeah. You want to just call it a day? Nope. It's early action. I don't have to go, but I know it's my number one choice. Let's just get that ball rolling and deposit. Um, you know, that's that's a decision you want to you know talk about. You want to make sure your financial aid packages is is complete. You know, is that part complete? Do I have all the information from a financial perspective to make this decision now, or do I need to kind of see what else may come down um, the pike? Um, Somebody else said, you know, (laughs) uh, write a thank you note to your college counselor and then stop bothering them. That was another (laughs) tip for anybody who had gotten in early action or early decision um, is to, you know, let them know they're kind of off the hook if, you know, you're planning on, uh, if you're kind of done at that point. Um, So I think those are some of the things you want to think about, you know, at at, at early action. And the other thing I would always say, too, is whether it's early decision enrolling, you know, ED doesn't matter. um, Just be careful about, you know, be classy. About how you've been admitted, mm-hmm. you know, I think you have to remember you've been admitted to places the others have not, right? And you don't know if the person you're talking to was desperate to get into Michigan and you just got in and they didn't or they got deferred, right? So right. You know, be classy. Um, You know, this was not an option when I, you know, when you and I got our admittance letter, the only person standing next to us was our mother. There was no social media. You know, your mom was proud of you. Great. That's all that kind of happened. You know, here people go to social media and, you know, with their acceptance letters and just try to remember it's okay to be proud that you got in, but remember that somebody else didn't get in, and that person may be sitting next to you kind of unbeknownst to you. Um, The other thing to really keep in mind, and I think of a story that Ian said um, one of our colleagues is about going to social media and being kind of excessively celebratory on on one of those things i remember there was a student they said when he worked there and that gotten in you know I think to a lot of the ivs and really some really selective schools and he was just waiting to hear from reed at that point and went to his Twitter account and was like, got into X, Y, and Z, just waiting on Reed, but you know they're going to take me because they're my safety. Well, guess who was reading his Twitter feed? (laughs) Reed was. And guess who had an acceptance letter that got yanked right before it went in the mail um, because somebody saw that? So, again... Be classy, it's no better reason than it's the right thing to do, but because it could get you in trouble.
3: (laughs) Exactly. And for people who are interested, we have done segments on what not to do when it comes to social media. And then also, I think you and I did a segment a few months ago on um, avoiding the senior slide and not getting yourself in trouble, and where we went into, in a little bit more detail, what can happen if you do kind of. Let everything go. Um, So, Karen, thank you so much um, for coming on here, and congrats to all of those who are listening who did get into their early decision or early action school. Um, That's great for you, very exciting, and uh, good luck in that next step. Don't go away, because when we come back, we're talking about what to do if you're deferred in early decision or early action.
0: Excellent. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
0: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
2: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
3: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about what to do if you were accepted in early decision or early action. Um, but in this segment, we're going to be discussing how you handle a deferral. Uh, and here to provide her perspective is my colleague, Lauren Randall, who's a former private school college counselor and also a former Georgetown admissions officer. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? Um, good, thanks. And so thanks so much for joining us. We Absolutely. In the previous segment, we had a... a a nice conversation about kind of the things you need to do when you get accepted in the early round. Um, But there are, as you and I both know well, there are a lot of students out there who were not accepted, at least maybe not into all of their schools that they applied to in the early round um, and instead were Mm -hmm. deferred. So today, you know, let's talk about what they can be doing. And I guess my first question for you is really what is a deferral? What does that really mean?
5: Mm-hmm. that 's a great question, because sometimes I think you know that deferral it can almost feel worse than an outright rejection because at least the rejection is a final decision it allows you to kind of move on in a sense so that deferral is, is neither an acceptance nor a rejection it 's kind of putting in that holder, holding pattern um, yep. but I want to remind everybody that no decision admitted, deferred, or rejected is a reflection of On you as a person and I think that is so hard to remember especially this time of year this deferral comes out right before the holidays and it really stinks so I think there's that if if I have one piece of it main piece of advice here is to remind yourself that this is a decision on an application paper and not a decision on your identity I think that's important to keep in mind uh you know because it does stink right before the holidays
4: to get that deferral
3: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, and I think it's important too for people to understand that, um, you know, it's funny. I have some families where the student gets, Denied and then they're disappointed that there wasn't a courtesy deferral and then they get deferred and like you say sometimes they just wish it would have been a deny so they could move on so exactly. it's one of the classics um, you can never make everyone happy right so that is very um, true I guess you know another question that I get a lot is well if you're not admitted are you automatically deferred and I think that um, can be different at different schools so what's your what's your take on that are all students deferred if you don't get in? Or does it, how does that work?
5: You're absolutely right that it depends on, on, on which college you're talking about. So, you know, why did this happen? And there could be a few different reasons. So first, it's really important to know the practices of the college where you've been deferred. I think, you know, one of the first reasons for a deferral um, can be kind of annoying. Maybe you applied non-binding EA and the college, mm-hmm. they looked at your stats, they saw that you are well above their averages, but they also saw that you never toured their campus, and they think that, that they are in your safety school, and maybe they are. So many colleges can choose to defer top students that they just feel are genuinely not interested in enrolling, um, So that could be a reason why you were deferred. And again, that would depend on the college that, that might be playing that, that sort of demonstrated interest um, game or, or taking that into account. Um, So, some colleges will defer everyone. I worked at a college. I worked at Georgetown University, and their early action policy, if you were not admitted, everyone was deferred. They really felt that, you know, they were giving that student every other opportunity in that regular decision pool. But like you said, you know, many students came back and said, would you please just rejected me? I know I don't have a chance. So, you know, some defer everyone. Others will defer only a handful. Those that are truly on the bubble are really, really close. And what that is saying is that, you know, they really want to wait to review your application until they have the full context of that regular decision pool. So that maybe they're looking for a little bit more information. So I think that's kind of hard to figure out know the reason why you were deferred but it is important to, to know the practices and sometimes you can find that right in the deferral letter they might explain you know what percentage was deferred they might explain what percentage is ultimately admitted um but otherwise it might take a phone call to the admissions office from you or, or your college counselor um, but right. it is important because different colleges do have different practices
3: Yeah. And and I think you need to be prepared for the fact that some are not going to be all that transparent about their policies. Um, And, you know, I mean, and even amongst and I know I don't like to harp on the most selective. And I think sometimes we we do talk a lot about that. But, you know, my experience was at Penn and and at Penn, I tried really hard to deny students who really didn't have a shot in regular because I did feel Mm -hmm. like better that they hear it now that they can kind of go, you know, kind of accept it and move on and focus on other schools where they are going to have a better shot than holding out hope for something that may happen in April that I already know is almost definitely not going to happen in April. Um, but not everyone had that same attitude. Uh, at Penn, that was kind of how we like to handle things, but I know of some other schools um, where almost the entire early decision pool who doesn't get in gets um, deferred, and then there are other places, actually, where they don't defer at all. Vanderbilt mm-hmm. comes to mind. You apply an early decision to Vanderbilt, and if they don't admit you, they deny you, uh, so they don't believe in a deferral. Um, exactly. All right. So you've got your deferrals um, and, and we talked about kind of the different reasons why students might be deferred. Um, what are some of the things that students could do? And maybe we start with the um, early decision deferral. And I I do want to point out that you mentioned a really great reason sometimes why students are deferred, and that is because the school isn't clear on your interest level. That's Mm -hmm. never going to be the reason you're deferred in early decision because by applying early decision, you're clearly saying, this is my number one choice. So what are some things that the students who have been deferred in early decisions can and should do?
5: Well, first, I think it is so important considering the timing of when this decision comes out and the approaching deadline for regular decisions. The first thing you need to do is, is, you know, suck it up just a little bit and <laughs> reevaluate your college list. And I know, you know, there's that thing and, and thinking, okay, I just got to focus on my early decision. What can I do to get in regular decisions? But that's not really using your timing or the timeline appropriately you're down to only a couple weeks between that, that deferral and the regular decision deadline, you need to reevaluate. So if you got deferred from your early decision, that was most likely, usually the early decision school tends to be a, a reach school or you're, you're, you're being strategic on applying early decision there. Um, and it's kind of a reality check. If you are deferred, they're, they're saying that you're... You, you were just not as qualified or for whatever reason, your numbers or your essay wasn't as compelling, whatever reason it was, you didn't stack up against those that were admitted. So now if you're looking at your regular decision list and you see that they are all highly selective, they are all your reach or challenging schools, this could be really setting, you, setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment come April. So I think mm-hmm. that's the number one thing students need to do especially if they're deferred from their early decision school. But that also goes if you're deferred from your early action school that you thought, wait a second, these were all my targets in safety schools. What the heck happened? That's even more important than to, to reevaluate that, that list and make sure that you are not aiming too high for regular decisions.
3: Right. And, and that you know, I would add to that too is that sometimes I have students who get into a couple of early action schools and suddenly Want mm-hmm. to completely reevaluate the list to make it all more selective than what they were exactly. originally shooting for. And I think if you had a good list before you applied um, and the things you expected to happen happen not the things you wanted to happen, but the things you expected to happen happen ideally you have a good list that you should stick with. Um, it's only if the things that you expected to happen didn't happen that I think it's a good time to really reevaluate. Um, and I think those are some really great points. Um, what are some other concrete things that students can do in terms of, once they've kind of reevaluated the list, gotten their applications for regular decision out the door, um, are, is there anything that they can do as it relates to contacting the school, that kind of stuff? Yes,
5: definitely, definitely follow up with the admissions office directly. But the student must be doing this, not your mother, not your father. Uh, when I was working at Georgetown and, and we take these calls. I will never, ever forget being reamed out right before Christmas by a grandmother. Yeah. She thought And she could not believe that her granddaughter had been deferred. And I'm telling you, she just tore me apart. So the one thing that will never, ever work is yes. <laughs> in, in, in making those, those nasty gram calls, um, especially coming from a mother or a grandmother, because I will never forget it. And it certainly did not help her granddaughter as much as she was... Trying to to do that out of love, I'm sure. Um, yes. So the student needs to make the call, and always when you call the admissions office, always ask to speak to the admissions officer that's in charge of your application or your region or your where you're applying from. Um, because and if because oftentimes that person will speak directly to you, and that's who ultimately is responsible and the person that you want to make that connection with. So. Of course, this needs to be a very upbeat, positive, polite conversation. There can't be any kind of bitterness or this is unfair, why me, how could you? None of that. But yeah. first, first starting off saying that, you know, you're allowed to be disappointed, but you're also considering an opportunity. A deferral is yet another opportunity to tell the the office more about you and any updates and anything else that you know, might make your application all that more compelling. So I would say two things. I would ask, you know, first, double-check that your application was, in fact, complete. They had everything they needed. Was anything missing? So that's an easy thing to address. But then, you know, express your continued interest in the college over the phone but ask if there's anything specific you can do to supplement or strengthen your application for regular decisions. You know, you'll probably get a standard, you know, it was very competitive pool, you were, you were a great student, um, good luck. But maybe they'll give you a little bit more candid advice and tell you something specifically they're looking for, whether it's additional grades or maybe an additional subject test score or writing samples or another recommendation. So whatever they're suggesting, of course, then you have something concrete to to go on for your next step.
3: Yeah, and I think... um... I also think I want to add, yes, I think this is a great thing to do. Um, Most counselors will talk to you, although as you start to get into the bigger schools, state schools, things like that, um, they may be a lot less available to you. So um, smaller schools, uh, more selective schools, these are the places where you're more apt to be able to have a conversation um, at the bigger state schools, maybe less so. But you could try with an email and you can try to call. What's the worst thing that can happen? happen is they can tell you I'm really sorry the counselor won't accept a call or we're not allowed to talk to you on the phone whatever it is but they're not going to be angry with you for calling Um, that's always a good thing so once you have that phone conversation um, is there any sort of follow-up that you recommend a student do
5: So after that phone call so I think it's important if you can make that contact to to do it Um, of course like you said it doesn't always happen so what everybody can do is then send a follow-up letter or email. Um, You know, I I tend to prefer email. It came directly. I could then print it out or tag it however I wanted. But if you want to write a hard copy letter and, and send it in the mail, that's absolutely fine too. But the point of this letter is to continue to express your interest. You've been deferred, whether it's early action or early decision, but you're saying you remain committed. This school is your top choice or one of your top choices. But it's not a generic common app sort of essay. You're not writing one to all the schools you've been deferred. This needs to be super, super specific that you've done a reflection. You've got to, you need to find some other way to reiterate or demonstrate why that school is such a great match for you. So coming up with a few specifics um, and then perhaps on how that matches to recent updates. Maybe you've gotten some kind of award after the first semester or, or some sports highlight or leadership um, accomplishments. Maybe make some kind of connection between your updates and, again, why that school is such a great fit. So this letter, I would say it's not a full essay. We're talking about a couple of paragraphs maybe yep. to include your interest and, and your, and, and your updates however some colleges will ask for something very specifically so they might have right on their website or in your deferral letter or after you've called the admissions office they might tell you that no we don't want this love letter don't tell us how great we are we want you to respond to these prompts or we want you to send an extra letter of recommendation or here's a new essay that we or a writing sample we want from you so make sure you're following the those guidelines um and 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 the specifics of, of what they're asking
3: for. Right, exactly. Really good point. So all of this advice is great, unless the college is specifically saying, don't do this, do this instead. Um, very quickly, because we're almost mm-hmm. at the end of our time, um, what advice do you have about when you want to send that, that final letter kind of reiterating your interest?
5: You know, I would say that phone call needs to come probably right around the new year. You know, once you have your... your early or your regular decision applications and you've had some time to decontest and, and, and move on, that's when you make that, that call. The letter I would say or the email is, is soon after that, mid-January to, to late January um, or whenever you have your updated transcript. So your first semester grades are finished, then that gives you something even more concrete to write about if you have some great academic achievements. So maybe that's toward the end of January. What I'll say is that Regardless of how you follow up, something needs to come into the file, I would say by mid February. Because the worst thing that can happen is that come regular decision review, I know I sat in committee and I opened up a file from an applicant that I deferred from early action and said, this is exactly the same. There's nothing different. You know, how can I, how can I as admissions officer now better Make an appeal for you in committee if I have no new information. So typically they're in committee in the month of February and early March. So that's really, you need something concrete in there so that that admissions officer can make a case for
3: you. Right, because if you haven't heard from them, you can probably assume that they've moved on themselves and they're not interested. It may not be the case, but that's what you have to assume. And it is, right, like you say, how can you go in there and advocate if you're not even sure? Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Absolutely, Beth. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
3: Absolutely. Well, after the break, we're going to be looking at how assets are treated in the EFC calculation, so don't go away.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in.
0: Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
3: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm happy to welcome my colleague and former Northeastern University financial aid officer, Beth Feinberg-Keenan, to talk about how assets are used in the EFC calculation. Hi, Beth. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So I know that last week we talked about how income is um, used in the EFC calculation, and this week we're talking about assets. And I guess my first question is a really, really uh, basic one, and that is, what is an asset? How is that different from income?
6: So, an asset is, you know, really something that potentially I was going to say that you've saved. It can yep. be liquid or illiquid or, or not liquid. Um, so, assets are cash, checking, savings accounts, uh, CDs. It can also be stocks, bonds, mutual funds, stock options. Uh, property that you own, uh, such as uh, rental property, a vacation house, uh, those are the assets that the financial aid formula looks at. I'm talking about the, the federal formula, so when you're filling out a free application for federal student aid. Families often have primary residences. Uh, the primary residence is not a reportable asset in the financial aid um, on the financial aid application. If you're filling out the FAFSA, but many families may also be filling out another form called the CSS Profile, and there are questions about your primary residence. And co- many colleges look at the equity in your primary residence as an asset. And the other thing that I'd probably throw in there too is if you own a business. Again, business value is not looked at as an asset on the FAFSA unless you uh, employ more than 100 people. And I have to be honest, in all the years that I've worked in financial aid, I haven't really come across a family that employs more than 100 people that they are really in a a position that they're having to report uh, the value of a family-owned business. And then also I just want to just point out, Retirement accounts. So, if you your four hundred one k's, your four hundred three b's, IRAs, Roth IRAs, pensions, annuities, and life insurance is also not a reportable asset on the financial aid um, on the financial aid formulas either.
3: Got it. All right. So, um, we have some basic understanding of what assets are. Um, one question is for parents who've maybe been saving for college for a while: um, Is that going to impact the amount of financial aid that their child is eligible to receive?
6: In fact, that, that's a great question. I often, you know, speaking with just even friends and family, one one um, common theme is a lot of friends often say, you know, we've stopped saving. We're not saving for our children for college because we've heard from friends that it's going to impact or make our children not eligible for financial aid. And as you learned last week uh, in the radio show, t- in the radio show, uh, yeah. Tara mentioned that your income really drives what families are expected to pay for college. So I don't want to lie and say that assets are not going to impact what a family is expected to pay for college, but income really drives that family contribution. Parent-owned assets assets are treated very favorably in the financial aid formula, and they're assessed at no more than 6% of the value. So what that means is if parents, if you have $10,000 in savings, whether it's in you know, college savings account or if it's in cash that you have in the bank, you know, that might increase what you have to pay for college by no more than $600. So wow. again, it's not necessarily going to break the deal.
3: Got it. So, right, so if you're not making enough money and you qualify for financial aid, having been really good and putting that money to the side to pay for your child's education rather than blowing what little you did have on you know, a nicer car or a bigger house um, actually works in your favor, right? Because you actually have that savings to help you pay for the amount that the college is going to expect you to pay.
6: And you said it exactly, Beth, exactly. So whether it's money that they're going to pay directly to the college, you know, in the fall and the spring semester, use it to spread out over the academic year, or even use that money in their savings account to repay for a longer period of time by borrowing a loan.
3: Got it. All right, so so message here is, please don't stop saving for your child, because it's not going to harm your financial aid as much as you think it will. Um, what about um, you're getting money from family members, maybe everyone in the family is on board with the fact that your child is going to go to college, and everyone wants to support that, so they give money for special occasions. Um, and you're putting it into a savings account, but you want it to be in his name because it's his money, Uh, is that going to impact the financial aid that your child receives? Well,
6: assets in the child's name are actually assessed less favorably in the financial aid formula than those assets in the parent's name. So yes, the short answer is yes. If you have assets in your children's name, those assets are going to to be assessed between 20% and 25% of the value. So again... If your children have a a savings account, if they have a custodial account that was set up for them, any assets that are in their name that they're the account owner of, let's say, again, that same $10,000 example, that can increase what what your family has to pay for college between $2,000 and $2,500. Got
4: it. So,
6: you know, first and foremost, if you're in this position where your child does have assets, I always recommend to families... Get an idea of what you 're going to be expected to pay for college without their assets. See if you 're even going to be eligible for any type of need based financial assistance before you get overly concerned because if it 's not going to impact financial aid eligibility, then you know keep it there you know it 's not going to change whether they get you know a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars or they don 't get any mm-hmm. need based financial aid at all. But if it is going to impact um, the type of financial aid that you know, they get, depending on the timing. You may want to use it, you know, use it for certain things that, expenses that you have for them, college application fees, college visits, um, tutoring, extracurricular activities. So there's things that you can use it for to spend it down.
5: Got it. And again,
6: if you don't have the time, You could also consider opening up a a custodial 529, so that's a 529 college savings plan that is in the child's name as the account owner and the beneficiary, but there's a little bit of a loophole in the financial aid um, policies that allow custodial 529s to be reported as parent-owned assets, so again, you get that favorable financial aid treatment.
3: Got it. All right. So for parents who have been putting money into a five twenty nine savings plan, um, mm-hmm. and maybe there are a couple of children in the in the family, and mm-hmm. the older child is applying to college and they're filling out the financial aid forms, do they have to report the value for the accounts that you they have in the na- or that they have for the younger children, or just the one for the child who's applying for college? When they're filing for financial aid, they're actually
6: reporting the value of all 529s that they have for all of the children that they're the account owners of. So if they have two or three children, again, it's the um, cumulative value of all of those accounts. And there's a couple of reasons why a lot of families, again, get overly concerned. But think back to my original comment that, you know, it's only being assessed at 6%, so it's not dollar for dollar, that if you have three accounts with $10,000 in each of them, it's not going to increase what you have to pay for college by $30,000. Right. But, I mean, keep in mind, you can change the beneficiary between your children, and hypothetically, you could use all of that money that you've saved for all of your children for that oldest child who is off to college first.
3: Right? And then when you have other kids in college, if they're all in college at the same time, you do get a break. So that's an interesting, and that's probably a subject for another day. But <laughs> um, what about uh, if grandparents have been saving for the student and they're, they're saving in a 529 college savings plan? Do they have to report that somewhere on the financial aid application?
6: And that's a great question, Beth. I mean, along the lines of um, my husband and I, are we, we actually save for our niece, and we've been saving for her since she was one years old. And so it's something that we thought about as we put away money to save for her for college and for her future. Mm -hmm. We knew that that was money that her mom would not have to report on the financial aid application Mm -hmm. as an asset. Um, And again, this is the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. So we knew it wouldn't necessarily impact her uh, in terms of financial aid eligibility. That's the same for grandparent owned 529s too. Now, It also is related to the timing of when the family goes to use the money. You know, it is reported as untaxed income to the student at the time that it's being used to pay for college. So, if you're using it to pay for college, then in subsequent years, you are going to be reporting this as untaxed income. But, there's now a delay in payments, sorry, there's now a delay in terms of the lag time in terms of when it has to be reported on the financial aid application due to the new prior, prior year Um, that's just been uh, announced for the 17-18 school year. So, if you think about the timing in terms of it having little to no impact on the financial aid application process, it would be used during the child's junior and senior year of college. So, you Mm -hmm. really could use it for the last two years of college and it would have no impact on financial aid eligibility.
3: Wow. that's oh, a pretty interesting want to make sure. thing. So um, so the money that you're saving for your niece, your um, sister or your husband's sister or yeah. brother, whoever is the relation, mm-hmm. can use that. But it, the, the best bet is for them not to touch it until junior, senior year and maybe use the money they've saved for freshman, sophomore year. Is exactly. that accurate?
6: That is exactly the plan that we are not we're going to let her know when she graduates from college, from high school that we have this much money saved for her for college but our plan is for her to use it for her last two years because we do not want it to impact what she's going to be eligible for um mm-hmm. because she's likely to be eligible for need-based financial assistance
3: can i just say as an aside how amazing is that that you guys are doing yeah. that that's really wonderful and and how old is she now she is 8 years old Okay, well, wow. In 10 years, I can't wait to hear how she reacts when she finds out that you have uh, this whole fund waiting for her. That's really exciting. Okay, moving on. Um, what about, um, we talked at the outset about assets, you know, kind of what are assets, what assets are considered, and you mentioned that, you know, retirement savings are not considered, uh, and the Federal Financial Aid form considers some things as assets, but um, then the colleges have their own forms where they may consider some things that the, fi- the federal um, form does not. But what about your house? You mentioned um, vacation houses, your primary residence. Um, does it help if you pay off the house um, or does that actually work against you? So
6: if the only application that the family has to fill out is the FAFSA, mm-hmm. it's definitely a plan that could definitely work because The federal form is not looking at the primary residence as an asset. So, therefore, if you're spending down your savings or liquidating your savings to pay off your primary residence, then you have little, you potentially have little to no assets to report. Got it. But if the school is looking at other forms, such as the CSS profile, keep in mind that they are asking for the value of your home, they're asking for the mortgage, the outstanding mortgage that you have in your house. So if you're paying it down, then what you're doing is ultimately you're just increasing the equity in your primary residence, and it could work exactly the same way as if you had that cash in the bank. So you have to weigh that option in terms of, do I need to access this cash to pay for college, or do I not need it, and it's okay that we have you know additional equity in the house
3: yeah, so again, as with many things in admissions and college finance, the answer to whether or not you should pay off your house really depends, right? Could be good, could be bad.
6: <laughs> exactly, you know, exactly. And so, one of the things that I often recommend to families, and I can just kind of throw it out there, is if you want to get an idea of what your expected family contribution will look like, is to run an expected family contribution calculation. And the College Board, which is bigfuture.org, has a really good online calculator. And you can run that at any time. You can run it when you have a you know, young child. You can run it when you have a freshman in high school or the year before, I was going to say, your child's going to school. Get an idea of how, you know, how will spending down your savings or you know, increasing the equity in your house impact what you're going to be expected to pay for college by running both the FM calculation, which is the federal formula, and the IM calculation, which is an institutional formula that mm-hmm. colleges use who use that CSS profile.
3: Awesome. Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime, Beth. Thank you so much. All right. Absolutely. So um, I do want to thank all of my guests today. And a couple of things I just want to note before we say goodbye. Uh, The first is that we want to know more about you. And we're announcing this on every show. um, And we just want to do a better job of giving you the information you want. Um, And we've put together a survey that's going to help us do that. Um, The survey is open until at least the end of the year and probably a little bit beyond that. uh, And you'll find it at www.getintocollege.com forward. Um, As a bonus for filling it out, we're going to give you access to two free guides, one on avoiding the pitfalls of college essay writing, and another on the top 10 ways to find private scholarships. Um, So we're covering you on the admissions and the college finance side. Um, Also, next week's show, we're going to feature a guide to preparing to apply for financial aid. So there's some stuff you're going to have to get together um, and forms you're going to fill out, and we're going to help you prepare for that. Uh, We're also going to have another installment in our High School Plan series, and in this particular segment, we're going to look at the best courses and activities for students who are planning to major in business in college. And I'm excited about that because I have my colleague who used to work at Babson, and she's going to talk us through that. Uh, And finally, we're going to introduce a new series on extracurricular activities for students who have a variety of interests. So if you or your child seems to be primarily focused on playing video games and you're very concerned about what they could possibly do, um, we're going to have ideas for how to link that interest to involvement that's going to be a little bit more meaningful in the college admissions process. Uh, And just as a quick reminder, I mentioned it at the start of the show, but I'll mention it again. Uh, every show that we do is accessible 24 7 on the voice america website uh, and available for free download from itunes but if you do want to listen live we are here every thursday at 4 p.m eastern 1 p.m pacific
2: thank you for tuning in to getting in a college coach conversation hosted by elizabeth heaton